Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Good afternoon. It's Friday, November 9th. This is Noon Edition with Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. This week, we will talk about the future of public education in the state of Indiana following the election this week of Glenda Ritz as the state's next school superintendent. To help us do that, in studio today, our vice president of the Indiana State Teachers Association, Teresa Meredith, also Dale Bewalda, the state program and government relations director for the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, and state impact Indiana education reporter, Kyle Stokes. Thanks to the three of you for being here. Uh, We hope to, in just a little while, have on the phone Superintendent-Elect Ritz herself. We'll let you know when we've got that. You, too, can be a part of the program today by dialing your telephones. Call us at 812-855-0811. You may also dial in toll-free at 877-285-9348. Go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We'll have a live chat going there. And you can follow us on a Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, let me start by by asking the three of you kind of about your reaction to Tuesday's election. Um, we'll start with Kyle. You you covered it, and then we'll go down the panel. But um, the, your your first couple of thoughts about how it all turned out? Well, I think the first thing that characterized this race from the start, the only numbers that we had to show a difference between the candidates were campaign finance numbers. And in any statewide race, if you were to say, give me $250,000 and, you know, maybe some active organizers versus give me a million dollars, I think most people would pick the million dollars. And that's what Tony Bennett had. He essentially had a, a, a lead of, of fourfold, eightfold, tenfold lead, depending on how far back you want to count his campaign contributions. More than a million dollars raised in this year alone, uh, ran television ads in Indianapolis for the past two months leading up to the election. All of these super traditional advantages. So I was just as surprised as anyone else to see uh, Ritz pull out a win. I, I, I had a hunch that it was closer. And I've, I've mentioned a lot. I thought that this was a closer race than anyone wanted to admit. And when that Howie DePop poll came out, it kind of vindicated that. But I didn't expect her to win by four points. Um, I don't think a lot of people did when you look at the very traditional advantages that Bennett had. Mm-hmm. Teresa? I would agree. I think there were a lot of people who said, you know, she just doesn't have the money. And you weren't seeing her on television through the Indianapolis media. So uh, there, there was definitely that disadvantage for her. But when you look at the number of people that she had on the ground running, uh, working her campaign, we called it the Ritz Army. Uh, she had a phenomenal number of people going out and spreading the message. And, it, you know, I think social media played a huge role in this election as well. Um, Facebook, particularly, it seemed, uh, the last couple of weeks, well, after that Howie poll came out, people's um, Mm -hmm. pictures started changing their profile pictures on their Facebook pages, and then it went like wildfire. You not only had educators, but then you had parents, and then you had those parents' friends. And I I even heard a gentleman in my area talking about, um, on the factory floor, that they were talking about the name Ritz. And so that says that something was definitely working in her favor, and it may not have been the money, but I really, truly believe it was the Ritz Army. And I remember watching the uh, numbers come in that night. You know, at 1%, at 2%, at 3%, uh, Dr. Bennett was ahead, and then they were tied, and then their names flipped, and we all kept saying, oh, well, wait till this county comes in or that county comes in. We can't get too excited. We can't get too excited. And then the, the number just kept growing, and Glenda stayed on the left side of the TV screen. And so at about 62%, We all started sweating. Our hearts were pounding. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is like that, um, you know, you want to believe and and you really put everything you have into it, not knowing how it's going to turn out. But it was pretty phenomenal. And it was quite a celebration. Dale, your thoughts? Yeah, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find folks, uh, too many folks coming into the race that thought Tony Bennett um, 
would be defeated by such a margin. Um, I think that was a big surprise. One of the things that I think you also see, I mean, with with the numbers that that Pence had in the state and that the uh, House and Senate Republicans pulled out from this last election, I think there's a strong case to be made that in Indiana, at least, education issues aren't aren't an easy partisan issue. It's not always a Republican issue or a Democrat issue that are going to come down on on one side or another on reform. This is an issue that happens and is influenced deeply in the communities. And I think that the um, Ritz campaign's ability to um, leverage resources with teachers and, and folks at the you know the very community level that you were talking about earlier, I, I think that had an enormous impact. And, and people trust teachers in their mm-hmm. communities when it comes to education issues. And so um, having an enormous um, campaign uh, war chest is obviously something that every candidate would like to do. But it, that in and of itself is, is not always enough to overcome some of those other challenges. I think some of the, the things that you might see from this campaign that, that um, might resonate is some of the the, the reach that and the, the, the speed with which some of the reforms were adopted um, and, and the perception in some instances that, that some of the local control was pulled away. Um, I think some of those things, in addition to, to um, just a solid ground game, is, is probably one of the reasons why that this, this big upset was, you know, came a fact. You know, I think you make a good point because I think so many people in the public look for guidance when it comes to um, issues related to education. I know a lot of people said, "Who do you, you know, who do you like for school board? What do you, who do you think is going to be good for that?" And so to have your your teacher, it's like, kind of like nobody likes the education system, but everybody likes their own teacher. Right. To have your child's teacher or teachers say, "Hey, this is the person we want to see leading this in our state," I think that's a very power, powerful endorsement. And I thought you also made another good point, two of you, when you talked about the impact of social media on this election, and that's probably something that we're going to want to talk about some more. But I come from a, a, t- a teacher-filled family, and my uh, all of my sisters-in-law. Um, and I have five, are teachers, and they were talking about this. And, and um, I think that they are probably fairly typical uh, and representative of teachers. They are mildly politically active, but, you know, for them to really motivate like this clearly sent a message to me that, wow, this is important. This is a big race. This is something I really need to pay attention to. And I think that that just was repeated over and over and over again throughout this election process. We actually, uh, now I understand, have uh, Superintendent-Elect Ritz on the phone. Uh, uh, Superintendent-Elect, good afternoon to you. Thanks for being a part of uh, Noon Edition today. We're glad you had a few minutes for us. Hey, I like this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations! I wanted to start out by asking, uh, we, we talked briefly about polling in this race and about how to judge where you were because there was not a lot of polling until just a few days before Election Day. There was a lot of public opinion that's, that looked at the financial numbers that Kyle brought up and said, well, that being the case and you know, politics being a money-based business like it is, there weren't a lot of people who gave you a chance. How did you stay positive in, in, in regards to what, you know, the common wisdom would be and keep your voters engaged, even as that public opinion seemed to say, how could she possibly overcome this, this money disadvantage? Well, early on, this was my whole focus, is that we needed to engage the educational community and get the message out to the voters. So that was the plan from the very first day. Um, when I entered this race, I, I I told my campaign staff, this this has to be the way we win. Uh, this is an old-fashioned campaign that we're going to run, and I've, I've helped with many campaigns doing the old-fashioned uh, get the vote out, get the word out, get the get the name recognition by word of mouth, and um, it, it, it just blossomed. I'm, I'm the one that traveled the state um, about a month ago. You know, I used to tell people at events, I'd say, just go ask a teacher. Go ask a teacher what's happening in the field of education and what's happening with our classroom instruction. Um, But after that, you know, about a month out, I didn't have to say that anymore. The teachers were talking. Uh, Everyone in the educational field was talking. Parent coalitions were talking. Grandparents, retired teachers, everyone was talking. I actually didn't want to know any poll numbers. I told my staff, I said, I just don't want to know. I said, because I feel it. I feel it that it's so strong and it's so huge um, that I'll be shocked if I lose. Um, I remember telling reporters that was last three weeks I am going to be the next superintendent of public instruction, and 
I don't think anybody believed me. <laughs> Let me ask you the question that I think is on everyone's lips now. You've got Republicans controlling the state house who have as much as said they don't plan to roll back many of Tony Bennett's initiatives if it's up to them. Um, that is a lot of what your campaign was based on. You yourself a while back said that if, for instance, John Gregg didn't get elected governor, you might have a tough four years in office. I wonder how much of your agenda that you ran on is actually doable. Actually, um, I have never had a choice in who I work with, and I am a, I am a child advocate and always have been for what's right in the classroom. Um, I'm a leader uh, in Washington Township. I serve many leadership roles, and I've never been able to choose the parents I work with or the, or the administration or the school board or the superintendent, and, and I've worked with many, um, always making sure that we had a firm focus on the quality of instruction and education, and that's why I got into this race. So I don't really... I don't care who I talk to. I'm going to work with all legislators. That's what I've always done. Um, I work with all people to be sure that the educational agenda is on focus. Um, and really kind of what I meant by, by four good years or four bad years is that, you know, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking to um, advance uh, Indiana's education in the classroom um, beyond what it is now. I'm, I'm really not looking to actually, you know, repeal all types of things. We have we have laws in place that I actually feel we can work within, um, and, and there are many examples of that um, from the reading program that was enacted in law into how it was implemented, uh, from the teacher evaluation piece that is in law to how it was implemented. Uh, and I firmly feel that uh, I have an entirely different philosophy about implementation. Have you had an opportunity to meet with our governor-elect? Not yet. Uh, he's out of town, and I'm out of town. Uh, so, no, we have not had a chance. I have talked uh, with uh, Sue Elfman about uh, setting up a meeting, uh, and we're going to be doing that here next week, I think, getting together. Uh, but we're both out of town. I'm actually in D.C. at a National Board of Professional Teaching Standards. I'm on the Board of Directors uh, and have been for six years. So that's my responsibility this weekend, and I know he was taking a little time off. You mentioned uh, you would work with people in the state house. I wonder how you plan to convince GOP leaders uh, that, that seem reform-minded themselves how to go along with your ideas for pushing schools forward. Uh, and, and, for instance, perhaps how to get buy-in from the teachers who it would seem helped elect you and, and uh, may not have been quite as taken with the previous administration's reforms. Well, actually, as I said before, I think it's all about implementation of what's in place already. I've already started that framework and that conversation uh, several years back uh, when I served uh, uh, and worked with the Teacher Evaluation Senate Bill 1. Um, and so I've had lots of conversation with uh, representatives. I've um, testified in front of the um, Education Committees. I've testified in front of the Select Commission. Um, I think uh, members of the legislature know that I'm a very well-respected educator. Um, I, I'm actually looking forward to working with everyone, um, and I think you'll find that they're, they're going to be uh, anxious to work with me uh, because I've not really found um, people who are not interested in, in really having quality instruction in the classroom and, and making sure that we have what's in place for our students. Do you plan to uh, go back to this wonderful grassroots um, organization that is formed during your election process uh, during the session and uh, bring them to bear on, on, lo on their local legislators? Actually, they're not going away on their own, I don't believe. Uh, they, they, have, they have spoken uh, very loudly, very clearly, uh, that this race was a referendum on education. Uh, and I think they're, they're going to make sure their voices are heard. They, they know um, the situation in which I now have my uh, duties uh, as superintendent, and they are going to make sure their voices are heard to their legislatures, uh, to their legislators, and that's that's what I hope they do. Um, as citizens of, of Indiana, um, I got more votes than the governor, and they, it's, it's all nonpartisan. It really was a referendum on education policy, and um, that's going to move us in the right direction. I want to make sure that I give uh, both our callers and our panelists a chance to ask you a couple of questions. We have just a few more minutes left with Superintendent-Elect Glenda Ritz. You can call us at 812 855 or toll-free at 877 877- 
285-9348. I wanted to open it up uh, to our panel, uh, and and I told them beforehand that they'd each have a chance to ask a question of you. Uh, Why don't we start with with Kyle Stokes? Hi, Ms. Ritz. It's good to hear from you. Um, I I, I wanted to ask you about uh, most of our listeners will understand that a lot of – that the legislature makes policy and that the executive implements it, and that's probably one of the biggest things you have on your side. But – In doing so, you have to work with a gubernatorially appointed body known as the State Board of Education and that the governor sets the membership of that board. How are you going to work with that board? Because if you're going to kind of be able to make changes that that I think you're talking about making, you're going to have to get them on your side too, aren't you? Well, the people in Washington Township know my style when it comes to that, Uh, but, you know, the the state of Indiana hasn't seen it yet. Uh, I am... um, a strong, strong advocate for what I feel needs to be in place. I don't just bring to the table, here's what I want to do. I actually will be bringing to the table, here's why. Here's data to support it. Uh, here's people who are going to talk about it. Um, here's, a, you know, I, I'm going to be uh, always in the forefront of making sure that what we're going to be doing is headed in, a, in, in, in the right direction for in the classroom. I want kids all over Indiana to have the right opportunities. I want an equal opportunities. I want to have school cultures that are positive in nature, and we need to to get a handle on that. Um, And I I want whoever I am working with will know my tenacity on making sure that we have what we need in the classroom. And I have always been a leader with that in Washington Township through six, seven different superintendents um, and uh, school boards and, and administrators, and we've always had a very clear focus uh, in Washington Township where I, I, I've been trained um, to make sure that we're on track for kids. Uh, Dale, why don't I give you the next opportunity to hop in here with a question for Superintendent-elect Glenda Ritz. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned just a minute ago that you, you didn't necessarily want to repeal all the reforms that have happened and the, the implementation may be one of the uh, biggest changes that you'll see. I just, uh, Dr. Bennett in the past has said many times that, that he viewed his role in, as being the superintendent for all of Indiana's children and, and not just the public school students. And I wondered if you w- would provide any direction, if, if you would anticipate any changes in the way that some of the programs that provide um, schooling options to children in Indiana, whether it be through the voucher program or tax credits or charter schools or anything like that. I wonder if you would have um, anticipate any change in, in the way those programs operate and are implemented. Well, first of all, we're going to have to wait a little bit on the voucher system uh, with the Indiana Supreme Court is going to be making a ruling after November 23rd uh, regarding that, the constitutionality of it. Um, I, I am been firm in my position that I believe public dollars should go to public schools, and I'm not going to waver on that um, and will do my best on my part to be sure that that's that's the way that it might be. Um, But that's obviously a bigger question uh, for the public um, and for those that put me in office and talking with their legislators. Um, That's that's a larger issue than just just Glenda Ritz as the superintendent of public instruction. Uh, but I am, I am very firm about supporting public schools. Um, I believe that that's, that's my job is to make sure that the public school systems um, get the support that they need from the bottom up. I, I really do plan to reorganize the Department of Education when my first task I'm getting starting on already is to have outreach coordinators um, so that we have a, we have a great um, perception of public education and uh, make sure that that's intact. Teresa, I wanted to give you a chance to get into. We should probably point out that the ISTA did support now Superintendent-elect Ritz in the in the election, but just that with the caveat, whatever you'd like to ask her is great. Well, sure. Um, hi, Glenda. Um, hope you've had a chance to get some rest. I have a question for you about teacher quality. You know, there, the research definitely shows us that um, an experienced, well-trained educator has significant impact on students' learning. And I'm wondering um, what avenues you're going to take to support and improve upon the, the quality teaching, particularly looking at licensing and, and those coming into the profession as well as those of us who are in the profession currently. Okay, well, one of the things that I would like to do um, in the legislature this year is to convince legislators that we need to 
put back in place uh, the, Nash, uh, the, the State Board of Professional Teaching Standards. Uh, that board was um, w is very much needed to understand the standards of the profession and to work with the licensing program. And so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe that's one piece that might be reinstated um, and so that we have a good quality group that can wrestle making sure that we've got good quality standards and licensing uh, going on. But I'm going to go back and talk a little bit about pre-service. Uh, I want to have some really strong pre-service training programs. It's going to require some great conversations with higher education communities. We've seen a drop in the number of teachers actually enter, uh, uh, people entering the profession of teaching. Uh, and I'm at, the, I'm at my board meeting now <laughs> at the National Board of Professional Teaching Standards. I, I'd like to see a process by where teachers, um, when they enter the profession, they know they're headed towards something like national board certification so that we do have the, the, the best and the brightest uh, in our profession. Reminder, you have just a few more minutes to call in for our conversation here with Superintendent of Public Instruction-Elect Glenda Ritz. Our telephone number is 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Glenda, uh, how closely will you be working with the Indiana State Teachers Association as you assume your new responsibilities? How do you see their their uh, relationship to, to your position? Well... Um, let me broaden that because I, I was elected by huge numbers of people um, representing a lot of educational constituencies, and I plan to have people at the table. I plan to have input from all the constituencies, uh, which I think has been lacking in the last four years. Um, and, you know, when, when we had things passing and going through legislative action or going through policy that everyone was opposed to, um, there's a problem there. Um, I don't intend to be that type of leader. I intend to be inclusive of all the educational communities and parents um, and, and, and have, have a big say in how we move forward now uh, with educating the students in Indiana. So I plan to be a very inclusive uh, leader. I always have it's hard to do that. Are you going to continue your uh, use of social media, or how do you intend to get that many players I, I think, to the I table? Think that is going to happen. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm taking some very key people with me from my actual campaign staff uh, that are just highly knowledgeable when it comes to that type of aspect. Um, and yes, I do. I do plan to keep in touch with people on a very regular basis. Uh, you you talk about you know staying in touch with the teachers and with you know you said you know passing legislation that that not ever that nobody was for. Um, I think it's it's important to note that you know that that teachers like a lot of other groups of people uh, may sometimes vote in blocks, but they aren't of a single mind. It's not like they're part of a collective that that has a single thought process. How do you get different constituencies of teachers? to go along with whatever it is that you propose uh, during your administration? Well, I guess I would say that that started with this election. Um, you know, they were never of a single bind uh, politically, um, and I knew that. You know, I knew that the reflection of the teaching staff as, as an entire entity in the state reflects the political um, outlay of, of the state. And yet, what was resonating uh, with my campaign were some very key points. Um, High-stakes testing, the A to F accountability that that was based upon a flawed um, student accountability system, um, and the need to replace that and get something that's fair. Uh, we certainly agree with accountability. We certainly agree with uh, student assessments, but let's let's do it right. Um, it resonated uh, about local control, and I'm all about local control um, from a bottom-up approach. And so, you know, I think. I think what resonated and will continue to resonate are those types of uh, issues that are important to us. So I, I know my, I know many children have experienced um, right before some of the high stakes testing the the feeling that you know all the teaching is just going toward that particular test. Is that something that you want to work to end? Oh, most definitely. I, I, we we need to have rigorous, relevant curriculum for kids. Uh, we need to have well-rounded curriculum. It has been so focused on language, arts, and math um, that we really have neglected um, many areas of our uh, of the curriculum that need to be brought to the forefront to get kids excited about school. Um, yes, kids, students, students are uh, are sure are just as happy that 
perhaps we're not going to have this high-stakes testing that we've had before. We need assessments. Assessments are important um, to, to actually um, be, make sure we're providing what we need for kids, especially in the area of reading. Um, but we don't need the high-stakes testing. We have, been, we have been teaching to test. We have been teaching to test for four years, and teachers know that's not more assessments do not help students learn. So, uh, so iStep is going to change? iStep is going to change then? Well, I hope to have real growth measure assessments. Uh, I hope to not have pass-fail tests. Uh, which is what ISTEP is. Uh, we need real growth measures where we know the true reading levels of our students, the true writing levels, the true math levels, uh, K-12. We, um, teachers should know the reading levels of students entering their classrooms so that we know what kind of pro- uh, resources and materials we need to provide, what kind of instruction we need to, to have for students to improve their levels. Uh, because great readers succeed. Mm-hmm. And it, it equals the playing field for all economic levels. Um, when students can't pass, pass, fail tests, in most instances, that indicates a strong reading issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we need to get serious about that in Indiana. Uh, but I want to have true growth measures so that we can have a fair accountability system and see actual improvement with student, um, with student achievement. We've had a few minutes here on Noon Edition with Superintendent-Elect Glenda Ritz. We've reached the bottom of the hour. We're going to have to take a break. Uh, we'll say goodbye to Superintendent-Elect Ritz. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon, and, uh, and good luck going forward. Thank you so much, and, and I'll be in contact. Thank you. Thank you. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Back in a couple minutes. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. This afternoon we're talking about the future of public education in Indiana. We just had a few minutes with Superintendent-Elect Glenda Ritz. Now back to talking with our panel. Uh, They are Vice President of the Indiana State Teachers Association, Teresa Meredith, Dale Bawalda, the State Program and Government Relations Director for the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, and State Impact Indiana Education Reporter Kyle Stokes. We hope you will be a part of us during the second half of our show. Call us at 812 Two eight five five zero eight one one or toll free eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. Find us at our website, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, where we have a live chat going on about the topic today, and follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Why don't we get to one of our phone callers to start the second half of the show? We have John on the line. John, good afternoon to you. Uh, what would you like to talk about? Good afternoon. Uh, I wanted the public in the greater Bloomington area to know about an opportunity this coming Monday where uh, our local chapter of Indiana Coalition for Public Education, which worked hard for Ms. Ritt's election, is uh, having an open meeting, and the topic is, what do we do at this point, given the results of the election, to support public education? Um, so that's going to be at 7 p.m. this Monday, the 12th, in uh, the city council chambers uh, in the Showers building. And then the second thing I had to say is I wanted to challenge the media because one of the characteristics of Bennett's tenure has been a lack of information, the lack of availability of information for superintendents, for teachers, for the general public, for 
for education researchers. Um, I, I'm hoping that the Ritz administration will be able to open up those gates and uh, and uh, supply more information. But the media is going to have to play a role because the media had been had been um, played by the Bennett administration and its supporters. Uh, I'm not sure, John, if you, if you pay attention to our State Impact Indiana reporting, yes, folks. I, the, I, would, uh, I would disagree with your that's, characterization. That, that's the brilliant exception. But Ms. Ritz was in uh, Bloomington for a public forum that ICPE hosted, and there was not any coverage by the Herald Times uh, of, of that event, and as far as I know, by any other uh, local news source. And repeatedly, uh, Tony Bennett refused to show up for forums in which he would talk with Ms. Ritz to public groups about the issues because he had all that money so he could follow a super PAC strategy. And we have already heard from Pence and from legislative leaders that they are, they are determined to push this through no matter how big the popular uh, uh, vote for Ms. Ritz was, and I would urge the media to uh, stay on this issue, particularly to follow the money in every instance, including at IU with the Board of Trustees, but also with uh, any kinds of programs that are going to come down through the governor and the Republican supermajorities. All right, John, thank you for your call. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, you can be a phone caller on our program today as well if you like. Please dial us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. I think what John was getting at a little bit is the fact that there is some divisiveness over how to move forward with public education, with any necessary reform in public education in the state. I, I wanted to, to ask all of you where we can find some common ground, where you can get past the, you know, one side believes one thing, the other side believes the other thing. Where is there agreement that we can move forward with if if at all, is there a place where we can start to say, hey, here's a place we can build a bridge here and go forward and actually put students first rather than put politics first? I think so. I, I believe that um, teacher accountability and student assessment are two areas that definitely we can move forward together on. Um, philosophies might be a bit different on how to do that, however. So that will be the rub that, that ends up working its way through the legislature, I'm sure. But there is a way um, for um, some sort of formal assessment to take place that can somehow feed into a teacher, an overall teacher assessment, uh, a, an assessment of the teacher's ability to, to educate the students. But there has to be more in that. The evaluation of a teacher is certainly much, much more than just the uh, results of a test because there is so much more that goes into actually teaching in a classroom. And so, But I do believe those are two areas where there is some common ground, some level of accountability on the teacher's part as well as some sort of a, a formalized assessment um, from the student's um, piece so that teachers are more informed on how to plan their instruction. Does it vary from school system to school system how teachers are assessed? I kind of asked that backwards. Teachers but, yeah. being evaluated, you mean? Yes, they're uh, the, the, the way in which they are evaluated. In the past, it was all over the place. Uh -huh. And then with the recent legislation on teacher evaluation, there are three components that must occur now every year for every teacher. Mm -hmm. An evaluation, plus they get a, a rating each year of one of four categories, and then student data must significantly inform their evaluation. So mm -hmm. that's the same everywhere, no matter where you go now in the state. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that varies a bit is the form of evaluation. Some schools are going with the current state model of RISE. Some are modifying that, and some are looking into models that uh, meet that law's requirement but are not necessarily like RISE. So um, RISE has not been well-received among many teachers uh, because of some of the components of it. But I think that uh, the school corporations that have tweaked that have had maybe a better response from educators. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see what um, Glenda does do with that particular piece and how she approaches that. And then particularly how the student learning will feed into it as what's, well. What's the ISTA's position on that? Would they like to see something that is the same across the state? Or w are they advocating for it's okay to have it a little different based on the community? We actually the had a, choices. a teacher quality panel that put together um, 
a framework for evaluation where there were some common pieces at its core, but then there were points that were different depending on the size of the school corporation, because that would definitely impact. If you've got a small corporation and your department head is the same person as the one teacher who's teaching the one foreign language mm-hmm. that you can offer, you know, it's sort of hard for the department head to evaluate the one teacher because they're <laughs> one and the same. It's quick, so, but right. probably not. <laughs> so there are, that's just one a very minimal example of, of something that may have to, mm-hmm. you know, when you're looking at how it's going to happen and what the evaluation should include that, that has to be considered locally. So mm-hmm. I, I do believe that, um, our, well, our position at ISTA is definitely a framework with more local control, and I do believe that is something that uh, Glenda will probably work towards, but the RISE model is in place right now in many schools, but the law is very clear on what must be in the evaluation pieces. Dale, what are your thoughts on, on where we can find some common ground? I think there are a lot of areas, and in, in, in one was just identified, obviously, on testing. I think there are some things that, um, and, and intentionally, when some of these reforms were passed um, in, in previous sessions, one of the things you heard is that all these you know, accountability measures are coming to place. But one, one of the things that I don't think was properly communicated in a lot of instances is the flexibility that is intentionally built in to allow some of the local, local areas to impact how some of these evaluations are done. And, 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 and so, yes, there are significant portions that are based on, on student performance and all that kind of thing. But I think that uh, th- there are opportunities to tailor that a little bit more, as our previous uh, commentator was talking about. One of the things also that uh, Superintendent-Elect was talking about was, you know, um, giving credit for growth that is made and, and it's continuing to some uh, in, in some variation, the growth model that Dr. Bennett set out so that you can track and, and give teachers and students credit for the progress that they're making in addition to just their test scores, which, by the way, have been going up at the same time while there have been additional Testing and a focus on testing in a lot of instances, um, overall testing and performance, graduation rates, math and um, reading I-STEP scores have gone up dramatically in the last several years. Um, I think that those some of those areas, testing, um, I think some of the reading programs, you, you know, you may see some of that continued. Um, there may be some opportunity. I think the governor's laid out some priorities with, with some pre-K programs and uh, some of those types of things. And I think s- some of that may be uh, stuff that uh, the superintendent-elect can get on board with. I, I want to just emphasize how important this testing piece is because this is, I, I think, probably the biggest thing that that is within the realm of possibility that does kind of change existing policy and even something that – I would theorize she could even buy, even get some legislative support from what you heard a lot with the A to F model when it was put together was that uh, a lot of people, including some of the Department of Education's traditional allies, being namely the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, said we don't like the fact that the I step, which is not a test that's designed to measure growth uh, relative to one's peers is measuring growth relative to one's peers. So you change either the wiring of the system or you change the test. That's possible on a state level. The rub is going to be actually the federal level because the state is now accountable to the federal government on that. It's part of a waiver from No Child Left Behind. It exempts Indiana from a bunch of uh, different technical requirements of of the law. You don't hear anymore about schools making adequate yearly progress or not. You Mm -hmm. don't get those ratings anymore in Indiana. So that's the rub in that case. But I I think that that's more towards the core of what you hear uh, Ms. Ritz talking about throughout the campaign. She is no fan of choice, for sure. She She's no fan of, of the voucher program. But that isn't exactly at the core of what her concerns are about about day-to-day education. Mm-hmm. When you when you kind of dig beyond the fact that she isn't a, f- a fan of a lot of the, the big-picture policies you hear about from Dr. Bennett. Well, when you, when you have teachers who report to us that they are spending a segment of 167 out of 180 student days assessing students, pulling kids out of a classroom, sitting in a hallway somewhere, doing some sort of quick assessment, sending them back in, pulling out another kid, someone else is in the classroom doing the instruction – there's there is a real challenge to an educator to, uh, in terms of owning the data of the students that are in the classroom when you're not even in the classroom doing the instruction all you're doing is assessing and so i think she as she is looking at uh, the kinds of data that we want to collect she'll look at the assessments that are taking place and i think that um, kyle is right in that i'm hoping she has the flexibility and the opportunities to streamline some of that and to make us less of a less of a test-taking society mm-hmm. and more of a focus on what is it we want the kids to know our students to know at all levels before they leave us how are we going to measure that and is it something that 
they're really going to be able to apply to life, or are they just getting really good at clicking A, B, C, or D on a mm-hmm. computer? Yeah, when my son was in the earlier grades, I remember thinking, you know, if we did an automobile analogy, it would be like driving your car five miles, pulling over and checking the oil. Driving your car five miles, pulling over yes. and checking the oil. It feels that way sometimes in the classroom. But but isn't, I, I just struggle with this a little bit because the mechanism by which um, teachers and, and classrooms are structured, teachers evaluate their students in this exact same way. The way that a teacher determines if their child is proficient or needs help in math is by giving the kid a math test. It's by giving them a reading test to see if they're up to snuff. And so um, testing teachers or schools or grading them and including this growth in some in, in some aspect, I, I, I really struggle with the idea that it's not a good idea to grade them in a similar fashion that we hold our children and it, it, to that same standard in the corporate world. I mean, everyone else is is responsible for some growth or some performance measure, and to not include that in in whether it's the current um, testing and, and assessment scheme that we have or some variation of it, um, to not include those sort of common sense assessments, I think would be a, a, a real problem, and it would be a real shame because we could dial back and begin to lose some of the progress that we've made over the last, since 2007, graduation rates are up 9%, students dropping out have gone down by 48%, and some of those things that, you know, when you find out you're not, you have students that aren't doing well in a specific area, you can target help to those areas, so. I want to get a couple of phone calls. Uh, Dave has been waiting very patiently on the line. Dave, good afternoon to you. What would you like to ask our panelists here on Noon Edition? Well, I, I, I think there were some questions earlier about, you know, funding for a lot of the uh, the programs and recently um, even the uh, the staff and, and some of the members there on noon edition advocated that I would spend extra tax dollars here in Bloomington to retain teachers and keep them on salary um, after raising that four and a half million dollars I didn't see a lot of extra teachers being retained so my question is are you talking are you about the MCCSE referendum? referendum absolutely okay uh, so my question is, you know, we've, we've put monies in place to make sure that some of those things happen, yet those monies were being spent elsewhere. How are we going to guard against um, abuses of finances in these type of programs? I would have to say that, that school finances is a really sticky issue. I'm, I'm actually, as, I'm, as a statewide education reporter, I'm not very familiar with the, the, the district-level finances. When you do a referendum in that way, what MCCSC passed was a referendum on general fund operating expenses. And so that allowed them to put a bunch of money into, uh, into the pot of money that they pay for teachers among other things. And there were a lot of things that were wrapped up into that besides just retaining teachers. There was retention of teachers. There was also, I believe, that lengthening the school day was part of it. And I know that that also is a, is a resource issue. That's a, that's a teacher salary issue. I, I'm, I, I don't know that I can speak to your concerns about teacher retention. I don't know, uh, frankly, what, what is, what, to what you're referring there in terms of your concerns. I, I just would comment to say that there are people who would advocate that there are too many restrictions on the way in which on the ways in which your tax dollars are used, um, and that's a whole different enchilada. That's a whole different mm-hmm. argument. But uh, your property taxes, in that way, are not supposed to be going towards paying for general fund expenditures anymore. They're su- they're they're only supposed to be paying for building expenses and th- mm-hmm. and things like this. So it's it's a it's a technical finance argument. I can't speak to your retention concerns, but uh, know there are other people on the other side who would want more flexibility in terms of how those dollars are used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dave, I also I, I worked on the referendum, and so I share your concerns. I, it did feel uh, to me that there was a, kind of a one thing being promised and another thing delivered, but I think that, that was, those were things that happened at the school board level locally, and probably uh, I mean, it's a great conversation, and I'd be happy to have a, another whole show about it because it's certainly worthy of that, um, but probably not something that the group gathered today is going to be able to give you any kind of satisfac- satisfactory response response to. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, We also have Dana on the telephone. Good afternoon. Thanks for calling into Noon Edition. Hi. Um, I have a question um, about special education and uh, specifically about autism. Um, Now that um, there's been a a rise in the diagnosis of how many kids uh, 
you know, have autism in the state of Indiana. And I was wondering if um, there were any uh, plans to either change or improve um, the way that uh, teachers are trained to deal with autism in the classroom. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there was anything that was going to change or, you know, they were going to look at and see if maybe they could improve. That's so, a great question. You. Well, I know Glenda has um, special education and uh, licensing. She has that in her background, and it's a, it definitely holds a special place in her heart. And it's certainly a conversation we need to have with her uh, because as we begin to talk about teacher quality, it's not just about the academic piece. It's about the classroom management and the needs that are uh, brought with every student, every individual student. And so certainly a conversation we will be having as ISTA with Glenda to find out what her plans are for supporting and training teachers who are working and support staff as well who are working with um, students with autism. As you know, many times in special education, there are multitudes of support staff Mm -hmm. that help us in the classroom, and they need the training just as well as the teacher, him or herself. And so definitely a good conversation that we will be having. Okay. I think the, that's it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to thank Don for bringing or Dana for bringing that into the conversation today because we hadn't touched on that yet. So thank you so much for your call, Dana. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Dana, I would just add to that. I would just say that you know the quality of of special education um, uh, teaching it varies wildly in a lot of places, and I think the most important thing is to is to give the parents the ability to be involved in their child's education. My nephew ha- lives in Florida, has um, aut- autism as well, and uh, one of the things that he's able to do is, because of a school choice program that they have there, they have a voucher program that is specifically targeted to special needs students, and it gives him the ability to select the school of his choice so that um, he can attend a school that is able to um, specifically meet his needs. And so he started out in, in uh, doing it very well in the local public school that he was in and then got to a certain grade and just kind of hit a wall. And with that voucher, he had the ability to move to another another school and has, has continued to grow. Um, I think there, there are some availability to do that with the Indiana School Voucher Program last year or this year, rather, there were 9,000 students that were receiving vouchers as a result of that. And ultimately what that does is it puts the accountability um, ultimately in the parents' hands. And if they're satisfied with where their child is, then they're not going to move their child. But if, if, they're, if they're struggling or if they have problems and they'd like to have them go to another place, then that's one avenue to do so. But in the state of Indiana, they no longer need a voucher to go to another public school. They just have to check with that school and see if there are openings. So it's very easy for someone uh, to make that call and find out if there are openings at a neighboring school. If they're not happy with what's happening in the school that they currently are in and that neighboring public school, if there's an opening, they can go through the process, and, and there they are. They can get in. They don't need a voucher. They don't have to pay extra money. That child can attend a different school. Uh, John, a little while ago, brought up the idea of money. We haven't actually talked much about it. And I've already heard some Republican lawmakers who have said they are thinking of taking a look at the state's surplus and thinking of potentially wanting to use some of that in the next budget session of the legislature to refund some of the agencies that had been uh, cut, had their budgets cut when the recession hit its bottom. Uh, you know, the, much was made of Mitch Daniels cutting $300 million in one fell swoop from public education at one point. That then would make sense that maybe if the lawmakers are putting some of the surplus back into some of these agencies, maybe education would get some. Let's assume for a second that that kind of money is on the table. I, I'd like to get a sense from the three of you where you think that money might do the most good. And, and Dale, I'll give you the the, op- the first opportunity to take a crack at that one. Well, I, th- I think that's um, it, it's an excellent question, and that's a big big question and problem needs to be addressed. Um, uh, one way that, that dollars have been targeted back to education, um, it, it, any cost savings generated by the scholarship program that passed last year, something like 4 to $5 million, is being redistributed back to uh, school districts that are losing students from the voucher program. So that's one way that funds are, are, are moving that way. Another thing is to look at the history of school and education funding and see, you know, money matters an awful lot when it comes to education, but how you spend that money matters even more. And so when you look at over the last decade, two decades, the amount of spending that has gone up and with a relatively 
flat test scores until very recently, we have to be very careful to make sure that any funding that we're putting into play is actually going to make it to the classroom. And we, uh, The Friedman Foundation did a study very recently. as a national study. It's on our website, edchoice.org. And it goes through and talks about of all the money that's spent, how much is going to the makes it to the actual classroom versus um, increases in spending that go to actually teachers in the classroom versus administration versus all these other things. And I think that's an important thing to pay attention to. I think one of the best ways to do that is just to make sure that any increases in funding it, it, are tied to, to to some extent to student enrollment. The money should follow the child. If, you, if you're educating more and more kids, then you should be able to get more support for those children. And so having that funding follow a child, I think, is be, be the most important way. All right, Teresa, I'm giving you a $300 million check. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to shrink down class size from the 36 to 40 in first grades in some areas to make them much more manageable and realistic in order to get the results we need. That's the first thing I'm going to do with it. The second thing I'm going to do with it is look at the programs that have been cut because of those cuts and begin to see what it is that had the most impact at keeping students interested in school and bring some of those back. Some of our fine arts programs, some of our agricultural programs, some of our family and consumer science programs, pieces that are essential to learning for some of our students, and they're gone. So those are the first two things I would do um, on my long list. But class size, I don't know if folks are aware of it, but but since that cut was initially made, class sizes have skyrocketed in some of our areas. We have, um, and it's not just in urban areas, we have schools with 36 to 40 first graders in some areas, and in some cases even more than that. You're talking first graders when they're supposed to be learning all of the reading fundamentals, Mm -hmm. the writing fundamentals, and you have a teacher, and you might have an assistant floating in and out depending on the funds. Yeah, that's the absolute bottom of the pyramid that if you don't get that right, right, nothing else can be built successfully on top of it. I've always had a fantasy to have bumper stickers made up that said, it's about class size stupid. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a whole, you could have a whole nother show on that because there's an enormous disagreement among researchers whether or not that is actually true. If you look at the data, there is is some um, uh, explanation that maybe in some of the earlier years, class size can have a substantial impact but that that tends to dissipate as as they go on. And so, I mean, I don't know if you had to draw a line in the sand, but I, I would guess that maybe around third or fourth grade, once, you know, you're no longer learning to read and you begin to, you know, read to learn, that at, as class sizes are bigger, the impact on test scores is, is, is negligible, frankly, at some of those later class periods. Hence, so, hence college survey classes that have 150. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember taking math tests in Elliott Hall at Purdue with 1,400 of my closest friends. Well, uh, we have actually run out of time on today's noon edition. Allow me a second to thank Teresa Meredith, Dale Bewalda, and Kyle Stokes for being a part of this program. You can find us anytime you like at WFIU.org slash noon edition. Also, please follow us on Twitter at noon edition. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, Dan Goldblatt, Michael Pashkash, Gretchen Frazee, Julie Raw, and a cast of thousands, I'm Stan Jastrzewski saying (laughs) thanks for listening to noon edition on WFIU. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.